this evening's talk, at least in part, is a response to the request from a few of you to talk about the creative process in relation to myself and uh, in relationship to practice. And it feels kind of like an experiment, this talk. Actually, in some way, every talk I've ever given feels like an experiment, but this one may be more than usual. I decided to call it a work in progress. And an image came to me, uh, came to my mind about this talk during this past week, as it was kind of meandering through my mind. And it was an image of a weaving, of a tapestry. The warp of this weaving being the exploration, the investigation of, of interdependence, interconnectedness, emptiness of self. And the weft of the weaving, also an investigation, a looking into the creative process and the creative expressions of our investigation and exploration along this way of awakening. All of the evening offerings during this retreat have been or really are uh, a part of this weaving, this tapestry of the path leading along the way. And I've personally been quite inspired and informed in many ways by each one. So let's begin by closing our eyes. Closing our eyes and visualizing an enormous jeweled net. If visualizing doesn't come easily for you, just let some sense of this permeate your mind. So visualizing an enormous, huge, jeweled net, letting it fill your mind. This net is woven of an infinite variety of brilliant crystal gems, each with countless facets. Each gem reflects in itself every other gem in the net, and its image is reflected in each of the other gems. In this visualization, this image, this vision, each gem contains all other gems. And now just letting the image go, 
letting the visualization go and coming back to the room. <coughs> In Chinese Buddhism, this image is used as a tool. It's used as skillful means, an analogy in the teaching of not-self, emptiness of self, in the teaching of interconnectedness. It's also an expression of an aspect of this truth arising out of someone's direct experience, probably originating originally someone's way of sharing or telling or speaking the inexpressible the unspeakable, a way of sharing the experience of interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh calls it. There are many times when, as the saying goes, a picture says a thousand words. It's often hard in practice to use words to describe experience at least words in the ordinary, linear sense that we usually speak. The teachings of Buddhism are filled with hundreds and hundreds of practices and pointings out that can inspire us, inform us, and to a degree help us towards our own direct experience of the truth, of the insight into how it is into not-self, into interconnectedness, which is the essence of the Buddhist teaching. Through the centuries, human beings have expressed the yearnings, the process, and the fruits of practice in poetry, stories, sculpture, this beautiful sculpture behind me, for instance, Music, chanting, dance, painting, drawing, calligraphy, theater pieces, flower arranging, gardens, photography, any and every way that we human beings can find to creatively explore and express. And in the process of unfolding, in the creative process itself, there is a deepening of understanding. Very often with new aspects, new facets of understanding emerging. It's interconnectedness in action, so to say. Just process, no finality, no beginning. No birth, no death, just process, unfolding. In our practice of meditation, we touch our connectedness, our not-separate self, our elemental nature, through knowing or knowing through the simple direct experience in the relative reality of our own body and mind. It's with patience and the natural clarity and brightness of awareness that we come to know the truth of our experience. Rainier Maria Rilke, who I like to quote a lot, 
so clearly and so beautifully expresses the heart of his experience and understanding. He says, everything is gestation and then bringing forth. To let each impression and each germ of a feeling come to completion, wholly in itself, in the dark, in the inexpressible, the unconscious, beyond the reach of one's own intelligence, and wait and await with deep humility and patience the birth hour of a new clarity. That alone is living the artist's life in understanding as in creating. When I was a dance student in university, we had to take anatomy and physiology. And then many years later, when I was studying to be a massage therapist, I also had to take anatomy and physiology. And both times, many years apart, I was struck quite strongly by some particular facts. The fact that water constitutes about two-thirds of our total body weight and that the weight of any other body is also two-thirds water. It's estimated that the normal water content of any living cell is from 85 to 92 percent of its weight. So are we different from any body of water? The air within any living body, including a body of water, is at least 75% of it. The nutriment needed by a single cell within any living form is heat energy, some degree of warmth, air and water. And within every single cell, there is a continuous movement of intake, transformation, and release. It's a microcosm of the process of all living matter, a microcosm of the whole macrocosmic process we call life. So what are we? Where are we? Who are we? Our practice, our practice of investigation can show us the characteristics of the extraordinary reality of our everyday, ordinary experience of body and mind, the reality of impermanence, the reality that nothing, no thing abides, that everything and everyone does not exist independently, separately, not in any way, not in any way, any shape, any form, in itself. All depends on all. And so we come to know with compassion the reality also of the anguish, the suffering, that we all experience with the desire for permanence the anguish of trying to hold on to being a solid, separate, independent entity within our own body, 
and the proliferations of our mind. As we experience more directly without the veil, without the intermediary of concepts, the elemental aspects of phenomena can become known. The element of earth, fire, water, and air can be known experientially if we're willing to look deeply without preconception. The characteristics of the earth element, hardness, softness, the water element, fluidity and cohesion. The fire element is experienced through temperature, hot, cold, and every temperature in between. The air element, which in many spiritual traditions is called the wind element, is characteristically experienced as tightness, tautness, tension, and movement. What is actually directly the experience of breathing, of walking? We can know this. We can directly experience these energies. Are we anything different from them, actually? A poem out of practice, actually I read it the first evening, but I'm going to read it again from my own experience. You and I, just wisps of smoke, of light, of mist, of breeze, transparent, reflected liveliness, dancing in perfect rhythm, never the same, even for the count of one. Walt Whitman, a great poet, said in the Song of Myself, I believe a leaf of grass is no less than the journey work of the stars. Do I contradict myself? Very well then, I contradict myself. I am large, I contain multitudes. A contemporary scientist named Mandelbrot has discovered a phenomena called fractal geometry. This geometry describes what the scientific world calls the astounding similarity of forms in nature. For example, blood vessels, tree roots, and riverbeds all have the same basic structure. In a commentary on Mandelbrot's discovery, it was said that fractals are a new pattern which could provide a powerful incentive for turning our attention away from the activity of the parts of nature towards the activity of the whole. So as we simply sit and walk and pay an extraordinary kind of attention Are we something different than nature, as the scientists are beginning to discover that we're not? We look 
experience deeply, directly, the physical and mental objects, the phenomena of our attention? Can we know what is actually universal, the universal nature in all things, physical and mental? The metaphorical, metaphorical speech, so often used by the Buddha, our life is like a flash of lightning in the summer sky, he said, like a bubble in the stream, he said, like a dream, he said. Poetic metaphors to describe experience that is, in a sense, unspeakable. Poetry as essence of experience, our nature as nature, ephemeral, fleeting, transitory, and totally, completely interdependent. This having no solid selfness, empty of self. Last spring, the night before I began my three and a half week retreat, self-retreat up in the mountains in New Mexico, a friend invited me to spend the late evening just before the retreat looking through the telescope of a friend of hers, a man who was a physicist up at Los Alamos. He brought down to her place, or near her place, which was also near where I was going to be doing the retreat, a very large, very huge computerized telescope. And he spent a few days before the evening that I was to look through it, getting it ready, working with the computer and setting it up. We were able to see other galaxies through this telescope, something I could never have imagined and never have imagined seeing. It was quite awesome, actually. And it was the perfect thing to do before going into retreat. I just stood there when he told me what I was looking at And I looked and looked and looked. I felt like I couldn't get enough of it. I wanted to sort of penetrate this other galaxy with my mind, with my eyes. And as I was looking, I felt like I was this tiny, tiny little speck in this immensity. And also, in some way, I felt totally a part and parcel of it. It was an amazing experience. I'd had some anxiety about going up in the mountains by myself for three and a half weeks, especially that day, because it was going to be the next morning. But somehow in that experience, all that anxiety dissolved. I'd like to read a poem by a contemporary Zen poet called A Love Letter which describes something about her experience. Within a circle of one meter, you sit and pray and sing. Within a shelter 10 meters large, you sleep well. Rain sounds a lullaby. Within a field 100 meters large, raise rice and goats. Within a valley 1,000 meters large, gather firewood, water, wild vegetables, and amanitas. Within a forest 10 kilometers large, play with raccoons, hawks, poison snakes, and butterflies. 
mountainous country, Shinano, a hundred kilometers large, where someone lives leisurely, they say. Within a circle 10,000 kilometers large, go see the southern coral reef in summer, or winter drifting ices on the Sea of Okshok. Within a circle 10,000 kilometers large, walking somewhere on the earth. Within a circle 100,000 kilometers large, swimming in the sea of shooting stars. Within a circle a million kilometers large, upon the spaced out yellow mustard blossoms, the moon in the east, the sun in the west. Within a circle 10 billion kilometers large, pop far out of the solar system mandala. Within a circle 10,000 light years large, the galaxy full blooming in spring. Within a circle 1 billion light years large, Andromeda is melting away into snowy cherry blossoms. Now within a circle 10 billion light years large, all thought of time, space are burnt away. There again you sit, pray, and sing. You sit, pray, and sing. In our culture, it's quite difficult for us to let go of separateness. We're so very strongly conditioned by the emphasis on individuality and competition. The whole backdrop of our culture is competitiveness, which is so separating. Most people live and work for the most part in separate, small, or large units, or alone, often competing for money or approval or more or better stuff. So often in our crowded conditions, Neighbors might not even know each other or maybe be just on a hello basis with one another. And we move about in our culture in individual automobiles or buses or subways or airplanes with thousands of others, often in a kind of cocoon of isolation, a cocoon of separateness. For many people, These modalities of isolation and separateness color their whole life. We think this is how it is, how it's supposed to be. We are what we think. And so it's self-perpetuating. As the Buddha said, with our thoughts we make the world. Our thoughts and our speech and our actions so often solidify this sense of separation through identifying everything as mine or yours, as me and I, our words, our thoughts, our things, our space. The amazing thing is that each cocooned being yearns to fly freely in and amongst and through this endlessly spacious life. Jean Lanier said, in the beginning, everything was in relationship, and in the end, we'll be in relationship again, 
In the meantime, we live by hope. It's interesting to me how some cultures, through the way of the of relationship is thought about and languaged, they help to create the conditions for a certain level, a certain kind of interconnectedness. It takes people out of their isolation in a particular way in their everyday life. It seems actually a small thing, but conditions of the mind, it conditions the mind and it trains the heart over and over again in the way that they speak and think. In many Asian countries, a woman may call another woman a bit older than her older sister, or one younger, younger sister, or another woman who is quite a bit older, mother. And men do the same. Thich Nhat Hanh is called Grandpa Monk by children. When I was living in Asia for a while, my youngest son, who was 18 at the time, came over for about six weeks, and we trekked in the Himalayas together. And we had a Nepali man with us as a guide, and he was about halfway between my son's age and mine. He took us to stay with a number of his friends along the way. And he would always introduce me as Amma, mother, and my son as Tsora, son. So everyone just called us Amma and Tsora. And it immediately set up a kind of intimacy, a connectedness, an experience over and over again of a certain kind of non-separation with these people. A me not being a separate Marcia and my son not being a separate Robin. That's his name. He's not a bird. (laughs) There's a greeting that's used as a hello and a goodbye in India and Nepal. And the word is namaste. I'm sure most of you know of it. I'd like to read you a translation that was given to me as a Christmas card one year. Namaste. I honor the place in you where the entire universe resides. I honor the place in you of love, of light, of truth, of peace. I honor the place within you where if you are in that place in you and I am in that place in me, there is only one of us. My Native American teacher, Wallace Black Elk, taught me the meaning of ho me which means in Lakota, all my relations. He taught us the meaning of this by his little language that he used, or uses still. He talks about the two-leggeds. He talks about the four-leggeds the flying ones, the creepy crawling ones. And in the sweat lodge, he talks about the stone people. And over and over again, he lets us know that we two-leggeds are just a part of the whole interrelated, interconnected natural world, not separate from it. Dogen, 13th century Zen master said, both day and night allow all things to come into and reside within your mind. Allow your mind, yourself in the largest sense, 
and all things to function together as a whole. Some notes from practice. One day well into a long retreat, I sat for the better part of a summer afternoon with the dragonflies, sitting out on the porch on the second floor of the annex, facing into the forest. I sat with the dragonflies. We sat together. They sat still, absolutely motionless, on leaves in the sunshine. I also sat very still on a chair in the warmth of the sun. Dragonfly and I were warmly bathed in light. As the afternoon wore on with the light subtly changing, the leaves one by one were no longer reflecting and holding the warmth of the sunlight. Only then, only then did the poised stillness of a dragonfly change. It would lift off the shaded, cool leaf and move to one that was still bathed in light until there were no more warm leaves. I don't know where dragonflies hang out when it gets cold and dark, but I just went inside the building. Nisargadatta says, separation goes against fact. Things and people are different, but they're not separate. Nature is one. Reality is one. Someone else said, things are one, things are many. The intellect cannot grasp these two simultaneously, but experience can, if it will. In our process of awakening, in the many forms that our creative expression takes, there's both the exploration, the investigation, and the expression of understanding, who am I? Who am I? When the essence energy, creative energy is awakened, unbound, so to say, and flows more freely through us, as we begin to slough off the conditioning, drop off the baggage that has weighted down and limited our experience of life, it may not always be comfortable. It's unfamiliar. We're in unknown territory. When the channels, so to say, begin to open, if we fight it, struggle against it in any way, there's a suffering. If we try to close off, shut down to the adventure, to what may be somewhat uncomfortable, mostly because we're just not used to it, it can become a struggle and a battle. And it's a battle that can't be won. If we open to the flow, let go of the familiar bindings, not try to wrap ourself up again in them. We may find ourselves painting or dancing or singing or writing, much to our surprise. 
and even enjoying the process as we're discovering more about who we are. As we, we, we relax and go with the flow of the creative energy, let it guide us and inform us, it's actually no big deal, as a friend said to me the other day. It just happens. It's just part of life unfolding through us. For a while, we had a weekly painting, drawing painting group here, which actually grew out of someone's interest in learning how to draw, someone who had never drawn before. And there are a few of you who are experimenting with spontaneous movement, authentic movement, and letting it flow into painting and back into movement, back and forth. A year ago, this last December, Joe, don't see him, Joe Dudinsky hung up many, many paintings in the Barry Players Theater and invited staff and teachers and a couple of other friends to view them. A large room filled with image and color, creative expression emerging out of meditation practice and other healing practices. And although it's just what happens, it's no big deal, it's also amazing, quite amazing. About five or six years ago, I did three or three and a half months of immersion into sculpture work, an intensive three-month retreat. The same obligatory fear came up a few days before I was to begin working with my teacher. It had been about almost 20 years since I'd done any serious artwork. I had taught art and creative movement in an alternative school for eight and a half years during that 20-year period of time, and I'd raised three children. But I'd only really fooled around occasionally with pottery and drawing. But this was the real thing that I decided to do. And the fear came up, and I said, I can't do this anymore. I don't think I can do this. I don't know how to do it. Self-doubt loomed huge, very large. And I couldn't hear the no big deal, it's no big deal. I was struggling against the flow of the creative energy and was suffering in the resistance. But I went to the studio anyway and began. And it was no big deal, actually. And it was amazing. And it was not always easy, but it was wonderful. It was wonder-filled. Very, very much, in many ways, like a long retreat. And much to my surprise, I could do it. And so much more skillfully and easily, even though it had been so long left at rest. I said it was because of the three M's that it was flowing so well, so amazingly well, energetically and skill-wise, the three M's being meditation, maturity, and magic. 
there was a knowing, an awareness of creative process right in the midst of it. Not thinking, but knowing as it was happening. And it was very interesting to be really aware for the first time so clearly of the experience of seeing. Seeing in a non-ordinary way. Being aware of the process of seeing only the interrelatedness of forms. I was doing portrait and figure sculpture in clay. And it's really difficult to put into words to explain the experience. But I'll try. In order to translate, to recreate, to create someone's head, someone's face into clay or someone's body into clay, one doesn't really see the whole solid form and try to copy it. What is seen is only relationship. The space between the points and planes. The points and planes themselves being the space in relationship to other points and planes. I don't know if this makes sense, but... (laughs) For instance, a nose is no longer seen conceptually. The top, the front, the sides, the bottom, the end are all seen as planes and points. Many, many points in relation to each other and in relation to what we call cheeks or forehead or eyes or the space above the upper lip. The form is actually empty of itself as we see it in this way. I understood clearly the process of creativity much more deeply. The conceptual mind on a particular level breaks down into no thing, nothing but infinite relationship, an endless series of relationships we call a face. There also was a clear knowing when a piece was complete, which was new for me. I never knew before when I was finished with a piece of artwork. There was a sudden essential quality of energy of the particular being that, was, that I was working on, particular person who was present in the work itself. And then it was time to quit. No matter how many things weren't exactly right, at that point it was time to finish. During this period of time I went to the movies one night and having been deeply immersed in the sculpture work for some time by then, I was struck by all the faces of all the people in the lobby, each one having the same equipment, so to say, noses, eyes, mouths, cheeks, chins, foreheads, etc. And each one at the same time being totally unique, just based on the tiny nuances of how, how it's all interrelated. My awareness was jumping back and forth that evening, seeing the diversity in the unity and the unification in the diversity. They're not separate. 
in the Avatamsaka Sutra, which comes uh, out of the Chinese translation of the Buddhist teachings. It said, the Bodhisattva sees the interdependent nature of all things, sees in one dharma all dharmas, sees in all dharmas one dharma, sees the multiplicity in the one and the one in the multiplicity, sees the one in the immeasurable and the immeasurable in the one, the immeasurable meaning the indescribable, the flow of process as it unfolds. Birth and existence of all dharmas is of a changing nature and thus unreal and cannot touch the enlightened ones. When I was in college, I had a life drawing class and we had live models. And one day, the instructor told us that he was going to teach us to see. He said, we're not really learning how to draw, we're learning how to see. He said, if we could see clearly, we would be able to draw. So he told us that day to draw the space around the form, between the form, not the form. He said, don't look at the form and don't draw the form. See and draw the space. And in that exercise, in that practice, the form emerged. It was like seeing inside out or backwards. My life drawing teacher, even though he didn't know know it, was actually teaching the Heart Sutra from a particular viewpoint. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. Form does not differ from emptiness. Emptiness does not differ from form. Sort of practical dharma out of the esoteric realm, not outside of the esoteric realm. When I was a dance student, I sometimes also did choreography and performing at the university, which I continued on with for a short while after my first birth, my twin sons were born. They took up most of the time after they were born, so I stopped doing that. But at one point, I choreographed a dance to a piece of music by Bach, At the initial showing of this piece to my critique teachers, this was while the dance was still in the beginning stages of development, one of the teachers said that I must must pick a different piece of music because a well-known choreographer had done a piece using this music some years earlier, which I actually didn't know anything about. My teacher just couldn't view my work freshly. She was struck stuck, really quite stuck with the old dance, although that's not how she expressed it to me. And I tried to explain to her that the music and the dance picked each other, that I really had little to do with it, and that changing the music would mean that a different, entirely different dance would happen. My dancers and I continued on with the creative process that was unfolding, Bach and all, didn't change the music at all. At some point, 
one of the dancers brought me a poem that was spoke to her of the dance as it was unfolding, which eventually, when the dance was performed, was printed on the program. This is the poem. At this still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is. When I used to perform dances, when I would be standing in the wings before going on stage, there would be this feeling of complete blankness. And then terror would arise. And I would think, I don't know what I'm going to do when I get out there. I have no idea. There was, no, there, there was absolutely nothing known. And no matter how hard I tried to think about it, it wouldn't be there. And then it was the same thing would happen every time. And then I'd have to surrender to this blankness and go out there and dance. And uh, it wasn't me dancing. It would just happen. So who is it that paints? Who creates a beautiful sculpture, a poem? Who dances? I am who? What? Who's doing anything? It certainly, and quite obviously in the midst of it, isn't me. Not I in any solid, separate way. It seems that true creative expression comes when it may, and we may know, and we may know that any attempt to force it from our self, our small self, so to say, from the I want to place, only stops up the channels. When all is in place, for a moment, for just a second, then and only then the flow begins. And sometimes there's the spaciousness, the let-go-ness for it to continue expressing and teaching us in the process. Creative expression that occurs quite purely from our personal experience, expressions of our humanness, expression of our perceptions of reality, beautiful or otherwise. Spontaneous expressions of feeling or reflection of insight, of understanding, or work that in some way honestly conveys the freedom of searching for oneself without having to find any particular answer are all part of the path towards reaching and understanding the truth of ourself, even if in the process of creation we aren't conscious of any of these possibilities. When I was teaching art and creative movement 
in an alternative elementary school out in the country in Michigan. A lot of painting time, there was a lot of painting time for the five through eight-year-olds particularly. And sometimes it was in relation to a particular theme, but often it was just free expression. One morning as I was walking around, looking and commenting on the various paintings already finished and those in progress, one little boy said to me, you always like all of our paintings. How come? (laughs) Kids actually have... uh, a way of saying things that can really stop us in our tracks. And I was stopped in my tracks at that moment. So I thought, yes, I do. How come? So I don't remember exactly what I said to this little boy, but something about um, honesty and expressing from the inside. And how could I not feel anything but appreciation I said I could ask him some questions or the other children questions and occasionally make suggestions. But there wasn't anything to dislike or feel critical about because what each one of them was painting was their honest expression at that moment. How could I not like it? Whatever, however I said that in, in child language, I don't remember now, but however I said that, he seemed to understand because... He kind of shook his head at me, and then he looked at me, and he kind of beamed. So I guess he understood something. In the partaking, in the hearing, in the viewing as the beholder of creative expression. There's so often for us a recognition on the intuitive level, a resonance that stems from our own particular personal experience. We can relate, as we often say, and we take it in in a uniquely creative way and discover for ourselves something. As in creating, seeing, hearing, partaking in our life, if done from the place of not knowing anything about it, from a place of openness and wonderment, there arises experience there arises understanding that takes us out beyond our limited particular self-container. We open to the selflessness of just being, the emptiness and yet total interconnectedness of ourself and everything. In any moment, this can be known cellularly. a poem out of practice. Everything is everything. Being everything, one has to be something, a no-thing thing. Being something 
is being nothing, not being anything, just like everything. I'd like to end uh, with reading something from one of the astronauts about his experience being in space. This is from Russell Swikert, an American astronaut. You recall staring out there at the spectacle that went before your eyes because now you're no longer inside something with a window looking out at a picture. Now you're out there and there are no frames, there are no limits, there are no boundaries. You're really out there going 17,000 miles an hour, ripping through space, a vacuum, and there's not a sound. There's a silence, the depth of which you've never experienced before. And that silence contrasts so markedly with the scenery you're seeing and with the speed with which you know you're moving. And you think about what you're experiencing and why. Do you deserve this, this fantastic experience? Have you earned this in some way? Are you separated out to be touched by God, to have some special experience that others cannot have? And you know the answer to that is no. There's nothing you've done to deserve this, to earn this. It's not a special thing for you. You know very well at that moment, and it comes to you so powerfully that you're the sensing element for humans. You look down and see the surface of that globe that you've lived on all this time. And you know all those people down there. And they are like you. They are you. And somehow you represent them. You are up here as the sensing element, that point out on the end, and that's a humbling feeling. It's a feeling that says you have a responsibility. It's not for yourself. The eye that doesn't see doesn't do justice to the body. That's why it's there. That's why you're out there. And somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life. And you're out there on that forefront and you have to bring it back somehow. And that becomes a rather special responsibility. And it tells you something about your relationship with this thing we call life. So that's a change. That's something new. And when you come back, there's a difference in that world now. There's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet and you and those other forms of life on that planet because you've had that kind of experience. It's a difference and it's so precious. Let's sit together for a few minutes. 